Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Jane Davis tells stories about the value of great books in ordinary lives. Jane left school at 16 with two GCSEs, but now leads an organisation which wants a bigger place in the nation's heart for books and reading. Later in life, she returned to education, graduated with a first-class degree in English, and spent three years writing a PhD. Thank you very much, and and thanks for for turning out um, after work or after a long, sunny, sunny day. Um, Hasn't it been very, very nice? You might be wondering, um, given the current crisis, uh, why the nation should bother making a bigger place in its heart for literature when we are going to be absorbed, it seems, for quite a long time to come now um, with how we will make a living, uh, how we will pay our rents and mortgages, how our pensions will last out. And so I thought I'd slightly change my talk a bit and, and though it's not my subject um, or field, have a tiny word about economics before we begin. Because, oddly, um, economics and literature go back a long way together. Um, Human beings invented writing about 4,000 years ago, and the first writing was economic. People wrote tallies of bags of corn, um, of jars of oil, of stuff they had and recorded exchanges. But quite soon after that kind of writing had got going, somebody else, uh, a non-bean counter, thought of doing something else with this amazing invention of writing things down. Um, And what they did was they wrote the Epic of Gilgamesh um, on clay tablets, And uh, you can buy it in Penguin Classics now um, in a lovely edition and read that first great work of human literature. Um, It's an amazing thing that somebody should have thought of of transferring things that were in here to this. It's not quite so amazing if we're thinking in terms of economics because it's quite important, as we now know, when you're swapping bags of corn and jars of oil, as we are around the world, to keep a good record of what's going on. But that somebody should have had the imagination to think that you could take non-physical stuff, um, memory, dreams, feelings, and transform them into what we can only call a work of literature. That seems to me an amazing evolutionary leap. Um, So we, here we are 4,000 years later, have the advantage of 4,000 years' worth of that invention. And yet I can say to you that um, in a recent survey... One in four adults in the UK admit in a survey to not having read a book in the last year. And call me a cynic, but I'm telling you, if one in four admit to that, um, the answer is probably more like one in two and a half, isn't it? 
many, many people do not read. Um, quite a number of people in the UK cannot read. Um, the Basic Skills Agency doesn't like to flash these figures around, but apparently about 24% of the population, the adult working population, have difficulties with reading. That's enormous. Um, and very, very worrying. But perhaps even more worrying are um, the other 76%. See, my, my maths is really on form tonight. Now I've started talking about economics. 76% of people who don't have those difficulties, many of whom never will read a book. Um, in a sense, that's what I'm here to talk about. Why, when we've got this fantastic invention, this ancient and beautiful, complex technology transferring the contents of a human being's mind, heart, and soul into a, an easily digestible form that anybody else can have a go at, why aren't we using that more? Um, you can tell me the answers at the end. I'm, I'm really looking forward um, to hearing them. I want to talk a little bit about the place of books in education and perhaps particularly in universities. Um, as you heard in, in my rather undistinguished beginning, um, I've not had what you might call a very successful educational life. And um, it got better as time went on. And, and uh, I want to think about what happened um, to me as a university student for a moment. So there I was, 25, single mother, child to look after, university course um, to undertake, and a grant to get me through it for three years. Um, been working as a waitress before I went to university. Um, two years' worth of, of stuff that did not touch me at all, as it were, purely academic, purely academic study. And then finally, in my third year, to bump into Mr. Brian Nellist, a teacher at the university, and an excellent reader. Um, and to feel suddenly, oof, this is all different now. Something's happened. Um, I've made a connection. I want to go from that to what happens then, say, at A-level now. Two years ago, a friend's son uh, was hoping to read law at university, needed an A in English to get in, and came round to my house every Sunday afternoon for six months for help with getting an A in English. Um, he was required to read a few pages from The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot and to produce a, uh, a, um, an essay, a reading of, of that extract, um, from a feminist point of view. And I would ask you to think about most 17 or 18-year-old lads and how close they may or may not be to a feminist point of view and how close they may or may not be to George Eliot and Mill on the Floss um, and whether that was an appropriate kind of piece of work to set to that boy and to thousands of other um, boys and girls who had to do that that year. I didn't think it was. But neither did I think it was right when he was... One of the other texts was a sci-fi novel. Ooh, 
Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Well, does anybody know that book? Is that its real title? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, where he was quite explicitly told by his teacher, there's no need to read the whole thing um, because they'll only be asking you about the bit about blah. Right? This is at a, a, a very good state grammar school. One of the top 10% schools in the country. So not a, not a, a, a shoddy old comp somewhere. That's a good literary education. Um, there's something wrong with this. Um, it's not right. And it's producing generations now of young people who aren't interested in books. And they're not, not interested in books because they seem unreal. So when our chair kindly said that I took books with me when I was on my travels as a teenager, um, it's quite true I did. And I took um, books that seemed to have sustenance I don't know whether they really did. I thought they did. One of them was selected poems of Yeveni Yevtushenko, which a boyfriend had given me. And maybe it was because it came from a boyfriend, and maybe it was because it was poems, and because Yevtushenko was fighting the regime, so in my small way was I. Um, they seemed to hold meaning for me. And so did um, Happy Days by Samuel Beckett. Um, not, neither of those two things would ever have shown up on, on the school curriculum. And if they had, I might not have wanted them. Um, Happy Days has Winnie in the centre of the stage, trapped in a load of sand up to her neck, trying to remember her life and talking about whether days were happy or not. What on earth got me as a 14-year-old girl into that? I don't know. I just know it did seem to mean something to me. And that place where it seems to mean is where we need to be as readers and where we need to be putting young people as readers. What wasn't in the introduction was the other bit about my husband, which I've somehow left out, which is to say he is a professor of literature in a university. So we do have some interesting discussions at home about um, whether English should be taught at a university, and sometimes I really do think it shouldn't. Um, which is hard for him because that's his job. Um, or uh, in perhaps how it should be taught. And I, if we go back to economics, if you think about the, the products that economics as a discipline exists, uh, in a sense, to serve, it's there for us. It's there to help us understand how grain moves from one part of the world to another, how wine is transferred from France uh, to England, how um, cotton moves from India uh, to North America. Is it that, that's what economics comes out of. Something real in the world that we need to understand. And if you study economics, please don't let there be an economics student in the audience. Is the one. Whew. Okay, well, that's lucky. But if you did study economics... Um, you would know some particular things. And I, I did ask an e economist to give me a couple of those. And he said, well, you, Jane, you could talk about efficient market hypothesis. And he explained to me what that was, where all the relevant information in any particular situation is readily absorbed into, into the current stand, standard of share prices. Okay, well, 
If you're an economist, you, you need to know things like that. He also gave me Ricardo's comparative advantage. Um, each nation has its own comparative advantage. That's to say, France is good at wine. Um, England is good at cotton. Um, we put a lot of energy into cotton. It gives us a comparative advantage. We can exchange with France. As consumers, savers, people with money in pension funds, we don't need to know those difficult parts of economics. But they do help economists think about the world economy. We, we, we're glad they know. My point is, should we be doing that with literature? What is literature? What's in it? Why do we need it? What does it connect to? Um, or is it purely aesthetic? Is it just beauty? Just. That's giving it away, isn't it? Just beauty. I don't care very much about beauty. Um, so perhaps you could have a little question and answer now. You tell me, what is it? What is it? What, why, why did somebody think of it? Why do we have it? What's it for? What's its function? It's for passing on knowledge. Yes? Rough, more or less, that is one of the things it does, isn't it? It's for getting inside people, other people's mindsets and understanding how they live. Right, so which, it's a form of knowledge. It's, it's getting inside other people's mindsets and understanding how they live. It's a thing to, for doing that. Anything else? A sense of connection. It, it can give us a sense of connection with those other people, all those pieces of information, all those other bits of the world we don't know about yet. From, from right back that 4,000 years ago, people have needed stories. And the story, the narrative, I can't say why it holds people, but it does. So uh, Janet is saying that people have always needed stories and that something about narrative holds people. That's a nice verb, isn't it? Holds people. It does. Why? We don't know yet. Perhaps uh, because it's the theory that these stories work for the listener because they recognise something comforting or possibly frightening. Yes. Pattern recognition. Yes. Right. So pattern recognition may be part of what we, we need in it. I completely believe that to be the case. Isn't it also partly just... Did you say just or did I? Entertainment. Um, yes, of course it is. And that's a, that's a big part of it, isn't it? In a sense, um, we do judge by the cover. We do, want, we do want to be drawn in by something fascinating or lovely or terrifying. Um, that's what gets us. They're the hooks that are on, on the Velcro. Right, yes, we come, yeah, yeah, lovely, coming out and at the back. Yes, so it's, it's a way, in a sense, of having a communal activity, or it, certainly in the past, it has been that, um, a sense of, of people sharing one thing, the fire, the meat, and the story, yeah. Um... I, I agree with all that, and I, I think that, that all writing, all, all literature, all literary writing, comes out of what it is to be human, 
And so it seems very odd to me that we should have turned it as a discipline into something relatively inhuman. Um, that, that that boy should have been asked, A, to read in someone else's way of seeing things. Um, it's going to be an, an odd, peculiar task. Why would you do that? I can see you might later, as a developed reader, wish to occasionally inhabit someone else's point of view, and that might be a salutary and sensible thing to do. But to train young people to be into books by being someone else, that seems odd. Um, I, I wanted to say a little bit about the fact that even before politics, political readings, got hold of literature, so that the main thing you do... You just have to disagree with me if you're really hating this. The main thing you do on a literature course, unless you're a very lucky person, bump into a very good teacher, a very old-fashioned teacher, is you study political agendas. Mm. Feminism, sexual politics, class. The, the one place you'll still find Marxists these days is in English departments. Um, why are we doing that to literature? Why can't, why can't people simply open a book and have those old human relations to the joy of story, the fascination of information, and the learning about being yourself, being part of this species? Um, there's one other thing, quite apart from the, the, the political agendas, which is the aesthetic. Um, that you can get very easily caught up in tiny bits of thinking about very particular things. Um, I'm thinking of, say, the beauty of bird imagery in the Divine Comedy, um, which I'm sure somebody has made a life study of. And I wouldn't wish to stop them making that life study. Um, but I do think if anybody were going to try to read the Divine Comedy, the way to do it isn't by thinking about bird Im imagery. The way to do it is by picking up the book, opening the first page, and taking in the opening lines of, I translate roughly and badly, halfway through this life of ours. I found myself in the middle of a dark wood. I found myself lost in the middle of a dark wood, actually. Um, any person over the age of 40 is probably going to be quite interested in a, in a poem or a story that starts like that. Um, I'll give you another bit, um, say, from Middlemarch, always quoted as the greatest novel in the English language, and almost certainly it is. If you're not counting Anna Karenina and War and Peace, of course they were written in Russian. Um, what's so great about Middlemarch? Well, you tell me. Come on, some of you will have read it. Go on, you have. It's width of sympathy. What? Somebody up there said something else. No? Okay, so we get the whole thing. The whole thing's in there. And, and as, as you said, the width of it. It's massive. 
You get the whole picture of, of being in England now, whenever it was, 1820. Thank you. Um, is that what's so great about Middlemarch? Come on, you've read it. You have. It's not your favorite book, no. Um, well, to me, what was so great when I finally read it, and it took me a long time to read it because, um, because I was a Bolshe youngster, so when they kept saying to me, greatest book in the English language, I would always think, no, it's not. It's not. I can see what's going to happen in this book. She's going to marry that doctor. I won't bother reading it. Um, but in fact, it, it, what's so interesting in Middlemarch is, is that George Eliot manages to tell a big story about a small town, about a community of human beings, and a very intimate story of one person's life and what it is like to be inside the consciousness of, of another person, what it is to be somebody, not you. That's the most amazing um, conception, that we could do that. Um, we've forgotten. We have forgotten how good it is, that this thing we've invented, this writing. Um, she, she says, and again, I'm reading you really patchy quotations that I've pulled from memory. At one point in Middlemarch, where young Dorothea, idealistic Dorothea, who wishes to find her true vocation, <coughs> has therefore married Mr. Casobon, the scholar, dead as old dust, and has found herself six weeks into her marriage, crying her eyes out, obviously knowing, oh, why have I done this? Here's another mistake. And George Eliot, the novelist, writes there, at that point, while she's crying her eyes out, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, dot, 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 we should die of the roar that lies on the other side of silence. Um, if we did, if we did feel, know, imagine what it was to be a person, not us, not Jane, not Janet, not yourself, but another. It would be too big. Couldn't stand it. I mean, there must be times, many of you will have felt, well, it's barely bearable to stand being yourself. Never mind somebody else's consciousness as a burden. Um, but writing, literary writing, is the one thing humanity has that gets close to that. That gets close to putting us inside someone else. In his fabulous and really horribly hard-to-read novel, Herzog, Saul Bellow, American novelist who died perhaps two years ago, aged 89, 91. Herzog is from, I think, the early 60s, maybe the late 50s. Um, Herzog is a, is a man who's going mad. He writes letters to, to people like Dante and George Eliot. Um, and there's a point in, in the book early on where he's talking about evening classes, such as the ones you and I once went to, Janet. And um, he, sa he says in that that he says, people are dying. It is no metaphor for want of something real to take home when day is done. Um, and the place he believes in that book you can go for something real is a great novel, a great poem. So why aren't we teaching that to our children? 
it's nearly time for me to stop, and I, I, I want to um, move away from this personal rant to tell you um, in a very brief form, and I'm sorry to you who've been with me in the day and have already heard this once, really a tiny amount about what um, I and my colleagues at the Reader Organization are now doing about this problem. Um, so I taught for 15 years in the Department of Continuing Education at the University of Liverpool, um, classes that, that you came to and lots of other people, and uh, taught gr works of great literature um, to people who came from other professions or non no professions. And during that time of 15 years of teaching, um, I began to think, what a shame that all this stuff, great writing, such as the Divine Comedy, such as Shakespeare, such as George Eliot, is locked up in universities and isn't getting out into the hands of people who really could do with it. You really need to know what happened when you woke up at 40 and found that you were in the middle of a dark wood um, and you'd lost your way. We do need to know that. Um, and eventually I um, made a sort of step out of the university and started a project called Get Into Reading in the north end of Birkenhead, which is... Tell me, where's the, where's the poor bit of Bath? Twerton, which is the Twerton of, of Merseyside. Um, but magnify that, of course, because of the Merseyside factor. Um, it, it, was a, a, it was meant to be like continuing education. We would read literature, but I was going to attract people who were not readers. Uh, and I did attract 14 people who joined a weekly reading group, and we read for the first eight, nine months of that course, every week, out loud, um, Othello. Um, people in that group had not read a book before. They could read. Not all of them, but mostly they could read. And um, they, but they had not read, and so they certainly had not read Shakespeare. Um, from that small acorn, a massive project has now grown, and we have... Currently, more than 80 weekly reading groups taking place on Merseyside where um, groups of maybe six, eight, ten people uh, meet each other and reading takes place. Those people may be 12-year-old um, boys who don't attend school in a community centre where they are given opportunities to do things like football and skateboarding and other physically demanding activities, but also reading group, reading group. Would you believe that you could get 12-year-old boys who don't go to school to sit in a reading group? Well, it's possible. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, we have groups in dementia care homes where people are normally sitting slumped in a circle underneath a very large, blaring television set. Um, would you believe that those people could be in a reading group? Well, they can. Um, the project is spreading away from Merseyside now. We've, we've got a little satellite out in Salford on the edge of Manchester and another one up towards Preston in East Lancashire. And it's likely that an, uh, a project 
We'll start here in, in, in Bath and Bristol area very soon and London and various other places. So within, I would say, I don't know how to say how long, five years maybe, there'll be a national movement to have people like yourselves, volunteers, trained up to learn to run such groups, um, maybe in pairs, maybe three people together so you can go on holiday without worrying about leaving your group because they won't want to lose you because you'll be giving them something fantastically valuable. Entertainment, company, pleasure, information, and everything you need um, to manage having one of these, you know, for being human. Um, I'll tell you one last story of... Um, we're doing a project in Walton Neurological Centre where a lot of people have brain damage, um, either caused by strokes or by other physical, physical injuries, road accidents and so on. Many of the people there cannot read for physical reasons. Most of the people there, like the general population, are not readers. Um, but we, we go in there every week with poems which are short so that you don't have to concentrate for a long time and you get a very big, deep um, blast of it from a poem, whatever it is. Uh, project worker took along The Flower by George Herbert. Does anybody know that poem? A few, few of you. Well, it is the most wonderful poem and uh, George Herbert... 17th century clergyman, probably a disappointed man in some ways, perhaps nowadays diagnosed as bipolar, certainly a man of enormous highs and lows, uh, which you can read about all the time in, in the poems. Um, the poems are religious. They're quite hard for non-religious, secular, 21st century people to read, but they're worth reading if you can make that act of translation, as did the man at Walton Neurological Centre, who had not spoken um, since he'd been in the centre, and who, when, when the end of the poem came, simply sat there in his wheelchair and managed to put his thumb up. Uh, communication had happened. I can tell you a bit of the flower. Um, the flower is um, where he's just celebrating the fact that he's been what we'd call depressed, dead, gone, and he's come back again. Who would have thought, he says at the beginning, my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness. And there's a fabulous verse, um, and now in age I bud again. After so many deaths, after so many deaths, I live and write, and relish versing. No. Uh, and now in age I bud again. I once more smell the dew and rain. I'm getting the lines mixed up. I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. Oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. Um, you can go to um, a course and learn to understand things about the metaphysical poets, metaphor, 
imagery, the aesthetics of 17th century religious poetry. You can do that, and there's really no reason why not to if that's what you want to do. But you can simply be a non-reader in Walton Neurological Center with brain damage, touched and moved by the feeling that you might come back. It might happen. And now in age, I bud again. Just that is enough um, as a little message of hope. I want to draw to an end quite soon, so um, I'm going to finish with the same poem I, I read earlier. And this is a poem, and um, it might be pertinent to whatever discussion we will have in a minute. This is by, um, forgive my pronunciation, pronunciation, Czeslaw Milosh. Does anybody know the work of Milosh? No, he's, he's, he's just died in about the last year, and he, he was quite old, I think, in his 90s. I think he was Romanian. He's certainly, you know, one of the greatest European poets of the post-Second World War. But I don't know his work very well at all. Just this particular poem I'm very, very keen on. So it's translated, of course. And yet the books. And yet the books will be there on the shelves. Separate beings that appeared once still wet as shining chestnuts under a tree in autumn and touched, coddled, began to live in spite of fires on the horizon, castles blown up, tribes on the march, planets in motion. We are, they said, even as their pages were being torn out or a buzzing flame licked away their letters. So much more durable than we are, whose frail warmth cools down with memory, disperses, perishes. I imagine the earth when I am no more. Nothing happens. No loss. It's still a strange pageant, women's dresses, dewy lilacs, a song in the valley. Yet the books will be there, on the shelves, well-born, derived from people, but also from radiance, heights. That's what I think books are, derived from people, but also from radiance. So I throw myself open to questions or talk or whatever you like. Mm.